thank you for tuning into this episode of Question This Life. You can listen to the podcast at questionthislife.com as well as all of the main podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and get involved. Hey guys, how's it going? Thanks for tuning in. Nice to be here again. I want to say thanks to anyone who's tuning in. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I really hope you enjoyed the last two episodes. They were part one and part two of a conversation I had with a good friend of mine, Brendan. He's from the same comedy scene as me. And we actually, I wanted to speak to him. The reason, one of the main reasons why I wanted to get him on the podcast was because he's someone who reached out to me and asked for a little bit of a help getting started in the voice acting game and in the the sort of online freelancer world and i gave him some tips about how to how i started how i kind of got the ball rolling with that and i wanted to kind of speak to him and have a a chat about his uh soundproofing of his cupboard and all these kind of little tips and tricks that i've given him that that helped me and actually what organically happened when we spoke to each other we hadn't caught up for a little bit of time so it was really nice just to hear him speak so honestly and clearly about his problems with anxiety and that in the time that we've not really spoken to each other much he's been off doing a lot of really hard good work for himself he's been doing therapy he's understood the value that he has to give to the world, to give to the people around him. He's managed to nip a few of the issues that he's got in the bud. And more than that, it's just nice when you don't hear from someone for a little while and then you kind of chat to them. You, It's always great when you hear that they're doing better than they were before. It's inspirational. It's super nice to hear. And I really hope that you guys enjoyed those episodes. I definitely will get Brendan on again and we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about the voice acting stuff and getting into the freelance world and I'm sure that some people out there will find that very useful too. But for sure, if you've got some mental health issues, if you've got something that you need to get off your chest, listen to that episode and there's an example of someone who is going through the therapy process who has a lot of good things to say about it. So that was a really, really interesting and fun episode to do. So I wanted to quickly cover the structure of the show at the moment. Obviously, when I have a conversation with someone, the structure is very loose. And so should it be when you're having a a organic conversation with someone. But when I'm doing these more solo episodes, where I'm kind of just speaking to you guys personally, I want to split the episode into three main parts. This is how I'm currently foreseeing it. So The first part will be essentially this. It's a bit of a recap of the week gone by, what I've been up to, how the freelance and self-employment world is going, how the entertainment comedy side of things is going, how I'm doing with my personal development, how everything is kind of sort of ticking along. And I think that That way you guys can kind of get a little bit of insight into me as a person, the host of the show, and get a bit better sort of context and understanding of where this, uh, you know, why this show sort of come around and what, what, what sort of things are on my mind any given week, which of course will change week to week. The second part of the show I'm envisioning will be more along the lines of ancient affairs. So looking into the ancient civilizations, lost ancient high technology, all sorts of stuff that that is going on around the world that is changing how we should view the past, where we come from, the structure of society, the way that our history has been recorded, what we consider to be archaic times that display 
completely out of place artifacts and out of place traditions and myths and insights into what clearly was a forgotten episode of our history. I find this topic incredibly compelling. It's essentially one of the main reasons why I wanted to start this show, to investigate these ideas and to talk more about them and hopefully to link up with other researchers who are doing the same, who are kind of carving the path into this alternative research when it comes to the ancient past. And then the final part of the show will be essentially anything else. So this could be more alternative research, things such as esoteric topics, dreaming, self-improvement, self-employment. It could be any sort of thing that, that it's a sort of like miscellaneous section of the podcast. So this week has been a good one. Work is going well. There's plenty of work coming in. It's, it's amazing to me. It never ceases to be amazing to me just how much you can control and how much you can really, what you can control can lead to some really cool things. So I've got this freelance business going on and it's got to the point where I'm now scaling and I'm introducing a lot more other freelancers into my business system. I'm delivering much more work than I could alone by outsourcing certain parts. One of the great things about this is that I'm able to reach out to friends. I've got a couple of friends from my personal network who have now got a little income stream coming to them through this additional work that I'm able to offer them. And it really just makes me feel so good to be able to not only, of course, increase my uh, income and capability, but also to share the pie and collaborate with cool, creative people that I have in my life, that I'm very lucky to have in my life. And if there's any way that I can help them just by by sharing a little bit of this work and giving them an opportunity to earn some extra income to help them pay their bills, and to especially the friends who I, I have involved so far with this are people who are doing passion-driven career paths. They're not in uh, nine-to-five situations. They're, they're other comedians, other artists, other creative people. So it's just really great that the, the stuff that I've set up over the last few years is growing so much so that it's now able to influence other people within my network, which is absolutely awesome, feels amazing. I want to talk a little bit about sacrifice. This is something that I've kind of really come to terms with over the last few months. It seems that there's this sort of... It seems that there's this sort of feeling that's echoed around a lot of the ancient texts. Of course, the Abrahamic stories and going back into Babylon and Sumeria, even even earlier than that in the, the ancient Indian texts. There's this kind of like theme that you cannot just get what you want in this universe. It doesn't work like that. The universe tests you. It makes sure that you know what you want and it finds out just how much you want it. If your goals and your path is unclear, then what you'll get is a little bit unclear. If you think that you're going to have something a certain way, it's very rare that, in my experience anyway, it's, it's actually turned out like that. Sacrifice can mean a lot of things. It can mean you sacrifice your time, you sacrifice your energy, you sacrifice a career, you sacrifice what you were doing for work, and you start to pivot into a different direction. And then there are other big sacrifices. You sacrifice being away from your family. Maybe you go on an adventure. Maybe you move to a different country. Maybe you do something else with your life. Maybe you follow the opportunity to start working in a different city. So that means, of course, traveling back and forth and seeing your circle, your family less. It can even mean friendships, old friendships that you thought were 
concrete and solid and had foundations that could not be rocked. It just doesn't seem to me totally clear that you can have any foundations that cannot be rocked. That's something that I'm starting to come to terms with. As I've gone through this transition period in my life, going from one career path to another, moving to a different country, moving in with a partner, taking on more responsibility, it's, it's been very clear to me that the way that you think things are going to pan out is very much not how things are going to pan out. And when you go through some rough patches, when you have some tough times, when things are not going exactly how you want them to go, it's kind of surprising sometimes who is there for you in the end. Who are the people within your network that come to help you when times are tough? Sometimes it's surprising. Sometimes when you need some help from specific people in your life and you reach out to them and you make it clear that you need to have a conversation with them about new beginnings, about something that's going on that's not going well, whatever it is, you know, like the people who know you the most, friends of yours who you've had for a very long time, you cannot always expect to get what you were hoping for in response. People develop, people change, motivations change, context changes. Life is full of nuances and different directions that, that, that present themselves. And when just when you think that everything is going hunky-dory and smooth and you've kind of got a grip on everything, you get a spanner in the works and something has to change and something presents itself as something completely new, something completely un, unplanned. And when those things happen and you, you need some support from someone or from people who you, you sort of had in the past, you kind of you can be very surprised at how, just like I've changed a lot over my life, everyone else is constantly changing too. That's something that you have to always remember, something I'm, I'm, I'm very aware of now. And it's amazing to me that, let's say five or 10 years ago, when things would go wrong and I was going through some bad times in my life where I didn't feel like I had a lot of support or I didn't feel like I had someone to turn to, I would very easily dwell on it. I would think about it a lot. Instead of tackling the issue that was causing my problems, I would worry and care a lot about the fact that I wasn't getting any support from anyone on them, despite reaching out. Now. This might come across as needy, this might come across as uh, over the top, but when you build a friendship over years and years, there's a certain ebb and flow that's expected that when one party is having a bad time, the other one comes for you. When you're having a, 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 a good time, you share the good times. That's kind of like a, a give and take of how a true friendship evolves. Now, there are a million factors that can change that dynamic and it's it's senseless to blame and it's senseless to dwell on dynamics changing there's a really really great youtube life coach i guess i, I would call her life coach uh psychologist called julia christina i would highly recommend her to anyone who's listening to this podcast she has a very, very clear understanding of the human condition, the psychology behind our actions, the motivations that, that drive us, and the common issues that we face when we're going through bad times, good times, situations with other people, situations alone. And one of the things that I really, really picked up from some recent videos that I've been watching of hers is when the situation with someone else is not panning out in the way that you would hope it would, 
maybe it's not necessarily time to question the other person, but it's actually more time to question your expectations. So you have to kind of keep your expectations in check with everyone. doesn't matter who they are. doesn't matter how long you go back. doesn't matter what the context is of how you met that person. doesn't matter if it was a, a romantic relationship or a friendship or a family member. Whoever it is, something I'm really sort of coming to terms with and learning now is people change. People have, people's motivations change. Their desires change. And where you fit within that framework can also change. And it's not of any use to dwell on it and to think, oh, why, why can't things be like they were before? Or to expect the, the level of attention and support when you're going through a bad time as you have had in the past from certain people. In fact, it's something that I've understood now as a moving part. This is a moving part. It's a kind of cyclical thing. It doesn't just go in one line. And when you, you make yourself clear and you reach out and you say, I need support, I need a hand with this, I, I'm not okay, I need to speak to someone, and you don't get that support that you need, don't dwell on it. Just move on. Just move on. I can spend as long as I want worrying and caring about how I'm not getting a reaction that I expect from someone in the past who 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 I know who I've known for a long time or I can look to my present situation my current situation and the future that is unfolding in front of me and look around at the amazing characters that I have in my life I have all I had to do when I was going through this this tough time was look to newer friends, newer people who have come into my life. I've had help from people who I don't, who I would not have expected would be there reaching out to help me. It's That's the kind of crux of what I'm trying to say here is you never know who are the people who are going to stick by you when you have tough times. You might think you know but you don't know. And to say that you know is a disservice to yourself because you're just setting yourself up for problems. The way that this works is, is moving. It's always constantly moving. So I met a couple of really good friends over the last year or two, a couple through mutual friends, a couple through the various uh, things that I do with my time. And I've been blown away by how quickly you can build a good friendship with someone and get to a really clear understanding with one another and that you're on the same vibe, that things are going well. And it, it shows me that you don't need to dwell on old past relationships that are not satisfying your needs as a friend or as a person. It's It's completely up to you to keep pushing and to keep fighting for that to stay alive or you can just learn to accept and you can just learn to move on there's a, a recurring theme also in the ancient texts that says when you have problems in your life and situations are not going well and then you move to a different mindset a different approach and you start to rebuild from the ground up you have to let the past go. If you have dead wood on your boat, you've got you've to burn it off. You've got to let it burn off. You can't dwell on things when they're not going well. You have to move on. You have to focus on what's good in your life. Focus on what's positive in your life. I'm not saying... I would say that, generally speaking, my personality does tend to venture towards the positive, which is... A good thing and a bad thing. It's not necessarily always a good thing. But I'm not saying like don't feel your bad feelings or just brush things under the carpet. Far from it. What I'm saying is and what's helped me is to acknowledge it, accept it, take it for what it is and then leave it in the past. Learn from it. Take it as a learning experience and then look around you at the things that you do have, the things that are going well, 
I could not sit here and complain about my life or any parts of my life, even past relationships and past friendships that I thought would be stronger at this point. That's just not something that is useful. It's better to focus on the relationships that I do have that are going well. And that's something that, that Julia Christina, this YouTube uh, personality, has helped me understand and has also like emboldened the life experience that I've had over the last couple of years. So concluding words on that is don't ever discount anyone who's in your life because you never know who might be there when you are needing a hand. And don't be complacent about who you think is there because people change, motivations change, and it's absolutely no detriment to them. I hope that this isn't coming across as any kind of a criticism. It's not at all. I've done the same thing. I'm sure that there are people who think about me as someone who they used to speak to, someone who used to uh, reach out to them and kind of support them. And I've moved to a different country. I'm doing different stuff. I'm uh, on a different train right now. And that's just the way it is. That's just the way life is. I've heard another uh, piece of wisdom that you can only really maintain a close relationship and a close friendship with a handful of people at any given time. It's impossible to have more than, I think I've, had, I've heard even numbers as low as 10, 15 people. So who those 10, 15 people are will alternate through life. And it's just all about keeping that relationship alive and actively keeping it uh, uh, fresh and kind of not, not getting complacent, not getting stuck. And if things start to change beyond repair, beyond the way that you can see them being fixed, move on. Don't dwell on it. Don't bring yourself down. There's no need. You don't need to do that. So that was a really nice learning for me in the last recent time. And it's helped me a lot. So I want to talk a little bit more now. And this would be a little bit of a change of change of direction in this podcast. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this amazing thing that's just absolutely mind-blowing right now. It's this antikythera mechanism. I think I've pronounced that correctly. So I'd heard about this this artifact a long time ago. It's been in the hands of researchers uh, and scientists for about 100 years, 120 years or something. It was found in the early 1900s off the coast of Crete. And it's essentially this mechanism that has completely baffled mainstream science for decades. And I want to talk about this specifically today, because in the last couple of days, there's been a really amazing advancement in the research of this device. Now, very often when we're talking about controversial ancient machinery, ancient monuments, this idea of lost ancient high technology. There's a lot of word in the mainstream trying to downplay the the grandeur and amazing nature of these artifacts. And then on occasion, you have these things that even the mainstream has to admit are quite clearly unbelievable or breathtaking in their level of sophistication, level of technology, and in, in such a way that they do not fit in the time when they are said to have been found, or uh, n not when they have been uncovered, but rather the time period when they, where they come from, supposedly. So there's endless statues and monuments all over the world, you know, these stone circles, pyramids, all over the world, dotted every in every single continent, there are unbelievable monuments that span tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of years into the ancient past. Now, a good example of this is, for example, Gobekli Tepe. This is the one of the biggest ever uncovered megalithic sites that dates to at least 12,000 years ago, dated by the mainstream. Klaus Schmidt, the German archaeologist who 
rediscovered the site, him and his team of mainstream scientists date that site to at least 12,000 years. So that to me says, if you if you have a, a, a site that's 50 times the, sto the size of Stonehenge, 50 stone circles the size of Stonehenge, that are much more intricately carved and uh, delicately placed in such a way that they match constellations in the sky and have symbolic significance and the exact dating of the 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 the, bur the deliberate burial of this monument being exactly coinciding with the end of the younger dryas period the end of the last ice age that to me says there's definitely something going on in the ancient past that cannot be explained by copper tools and traditional history and archaeology in the sense that this 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 monument does not have a history it does there is no development leading to that point it just appears out of nowhere a lot of this this summary that i'm giving you are is essentially a quotation from the likes of graham hancock and other amazing researchers who look into this subject so by all means please go and research these topics for yourself you will be mind blown and I, I I challenge anyone to to look at these these monuments and these types of lost ancient high technology that I will be getting into more and more over these episodes as they come, and to think that that the traditional mainstream ways of describing them fit, and that we're not just shoehorning our existing narrative into these complex, incredible sites, and this antique so i don't want to talk about specifically gobekli tepe today that's another another one for another episode that i'm very excited to get into i want to talk specifically about this antikythera mechanism because in my opinion this is like the gobekli tepe that you can fit in your hand this is a uh uh artifact a piece the size of a i'm actually not, not sure exactly how big it is but i think it's it's some sort of a you know you can imagine like a clock a very old clock that has hum a, a really intricate level of uh, gears and uh, machinery and it doesn't just tell the time this is something that i remember looking into and and i remember thinking wow can can that be real like is is it possible that they've made a mistake and they're just overestimating what this thing is i've got here the press release from the researchers at UCL, University College in London. It's available at ucl.ac.uk. The title of the post is Experts Recreate a Mechanical Cosmos for the World's First Computer. So the researchers in UCL have spent the last however long reverse engineering this piece that they found uh, 100, 120 years ago in submerged in water. Obviously, you'll see from the pictures on the site, it's completely decayed and it's got unbelievable water damage. It's, 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 a, it's a miracle to me that they've been able to do this. But it's essentially a very vastly complex analog computer that has survived from the ancient world. Now, the, the mainstream still argues that this is a Greek piece of machinery. This is something that the Greeks had. And it's quite possible that that's true. But for me, it, it's worth not forgetting that this could be much older and could have been something that was inherited by the Greeks. So it's used to predict the positions of the sun, the moon and the planets, as well as lunar and solar eclipses. It's made with a complex gearing system in two mechanisms, a front side and a back side. So... The sun, moon, and planets are displayed in an impressive tour de force of ancient Greek brilliance, says this report. The astronomical calculator is a bronze device that consists of a complex combination of 30 surviving bronze gears used to predict astronomical events, including eclipses, phases of the moon, positions of the planets, and even dates of the Olympics. Whilst great progress has been made over the last century to understand how it worked, Studies in 2005 using 3D x-rays and surface imaging 
enabled researchers to show how the mechanism predicted eclipses and calculated the variable motion of the moon. However, until now, a full understanding of the gearing system at the front of the device has eluded the best efforts of researchers. Only about a third of the mechanism has survived and is split into 82 fragments, creating a daunting challenge for the UCL team. I'll just go a little bit into some of these details because I find this so fascinating. The biggest surviving fragment, known as Fragment A, displays features of bearings, pillars, and a block. Another, known as Fragment D, features an unexplained disc, 63-tooth gear, and plate. There's a quote here. The classic astronomy of the first millennium BC originated in Babylon, but nothing in this astronomy suggests how the ancient Greeks found the highly accurate 462-year cycle for Venus and 442-year cycle for Saturn, explained PhD candidate and UCL Antikythera research team member Ara Aris Dacanalis. So we have a piece of machinery here that is at least 2,000 years old that has been submerged in water for an unknown amount of time and has been in the care of researchers for over 100 years. And we're now realizing that it has the capability of tracking Venus and Saturn in their 462 and 442 respectively year cycles. Where where does that knowledge come from? How can how could the Greeks or anyone who came before the Greeks know that? If we look into the mainstream explanation of our understanding of the cosmos and our understanding of the universe, we attribute the knowledge of these cycles of the planets and the procession of the equinoxes and all the stars and our understanding of how it all works to scientists and researchers within the last, let's say, 500 years, off the top of my head. So why is there a machine here that tracks a 460-plus-year cycle of a planet and does it in such a way that coincides with all of the other parts of the machine. So I would urge all of you to please go and look into this machine because there's now a video where they've created a 3D model of what they believe the machine would look like. So they've, they've, they've used like AutoCAD or these kind of uh, software to recreate the gears, recreate the, the dials and all the stuff that they, ha that they have that survived. And they've made some assumptions of what they think are the parts that are missing. And together, when you watch these videos, it's absolutely breathtaking what this thing is doing. It's like, it's like imagine four, four or five or ten grandfather clocks mechanisms all mashed together, plus a barometer, plus a compass, plus a clock... And it's all, all, all of this stuff all completely mashed together. There's one face that has inscriptions that mention celestial cycles, these crazy high year rotations. And curiously, in this mechanism, the Earth is in the center. So whoever, was, whoever it was that created this believed that the Earth was in the center and mapped all of this stuff accurately through the lens of the cosmos with us in the middle, this Earth in the middle. Now, geocentric modeling and heliocentric modeling are two different ways of looking at the cosmos. And this device works perfectly in the 3D model with the Earth at the center. So whoever it was that was tracking this or had absorbed information in one way or another or learned this information in one way or another believed the earth to be at the center and built this whole device with that around it like that is so mysterious and so deep and so interesting i'll go on to a couple more quotes from this paper this device uses highly compact mechanisms conforming to the physical evidence what this all means is that the greeks with their geocentric view of the cosmos, made it unnecessarily difficult for themselves when designing the Antikythera mechanism. <laughs> 
Instead of showing the planets represented by beads moving along concentric circles, moving in a single direction around the sun, they had to show the planets shimmying back and forth during their cycles as they moved around the Earth. Incredibly, this had to be done for each of the five planets, with the relative position of each having to be accurate at any time. So it's 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 not like it's not like because the Earth is in the center, the device doesn't work. They've factored in all of the necessary things that had to be factored in in order to make this machine work perfectly using these mechanics, using these gears. And this thing's meant to be well over 2,000 years old. How is that possible? How is that physically possible? It's completely puzzling to me. I don't understand it. And I think anyone who claims that they understand that this makes perfect sense and that, yeah, of course they could be able to do that. It's... I don't understand how you could have that view. You look at something like this, and it's like f the same as me, same for me as looking into the Great Pyramid, for example, in Giza, or in Pumapunku in Bolivia, these incredible monuments, the f famous H blocks, the stunning uh, Baalbek stone of the pregnant woman in Lebanon. These things that you just look at them and you think, there is physically no way that this could have just popped up and appeared. We would struggle to make these things now with our high technology and understanding of physics and chemistry and agriculture and construction. How could these remote people from the ancient past, first of all, have all this knowledge? Secondly, have the time and wherewithal and effort and energy to go about these huge feats of technological advancement all the way from this absolutely incredible monument like the Great Pyramid, these stone monuments, or the incredible walls in Sasquehuaman in Peru, and all of this stuff that's going on all over the world, including now this smaller mechanism that's so intricate, so detailed, and I quote, the scientists created innovative mechanisms for all of the planets that would calculate the new advanced astronomical cycles and minimize the number of gears in the whole system so that they would fit into the tight spaces available. Indeed, the gear arrangements couldn't be arbitrarily large as the hypothesized components needed to fit inside the device, including spaces no larger than 25 millimeters deep, so small, there's a 30-minute video about this research available. Please watch it. It's absolutely mind-blowing. And I really actually enjoyed... There's a article specifically on nature.com. And I'm going to add the, the website address into the show notes. Because this one is a, a particularly useful article. It's It goes into a lot more detail and you can actually see the videos. You can watch the model the 3d modeling that they've done in action and it's just incredible how this thing comes together so it says here we wanted to determine the cycles for all the planets in the cosmos to incorporate these cycles into highly compact mechanisms conforming to the physical evidence and to interleave them so their outputs correspond to the customary cosmological order here we show how we have created gearing and a display that respects the inscriptional evidence. A ring system with nine outputs, Moon, Nodes, Mercury, Venus, Sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and Date, carried by nested tubes with arms supporting the rings. The result is a radical new model that matches all the data and culminates in an elegant display of the ancient Greek cosmos. So they've reconstructed this and they've kind of reverse engineered and done a lot of really amazing work to create this device as close to what they believe is what it was and it's just incredible the front plate has star events and planet cycles the back plate has month names eclipse characteristics eclipse glyphs cosmos descriptions the calendar structure and the moon and sun cycles if you scroll through this article from ucl and you can see the maths that they've used in order to create this device and how it would have to work. It's absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, I, I, I was 
okay at maths. I did it all the way through school and, and then obviously never again. This is completely, absolutely way beyond me. And you you can see why it's taken so long for them to build this model. They've had to find period relations between all the different processes. And they do have some propositions within this article as to how these ancient people could have known the cycles of Venus and so on. But I feel like those are more assumptions than fact-based. It's, it's, it's easier for me to believe that they had been given that knowledge. Whoever built this device knew that knowledge and understood that knowledge without having observed the sky or made mathematical equations to understand it. It's, it seems it seems to me to be more confusing to think that they would have spent so long observing the sky that they, they could actually make these assumptions. It really is quite an amazing piece. It's an amazing device. It's another in a long list that's getting longer and longer of completely mysterious artifacts which we know, of the origins of which we know nothing about or very little about. And little by little, all of these things are ebbing away at the mainstream understanding of our ancient past and the dizzy heights that have been and gone and the understanding that we are not the pinnacle. We There has been multiple cycles. There have been other civilizations and there's a lot of evidence of them dotted all over the world. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about this device and how incredibly interesting I find it and how useful it would be if more people clued themselves up on this and really started to question what is going on. How is it possible that our current understanding of ancient history does not equate to the advancements of these technological devices or monuments around the world? And I've, I've literally spoken about five to ten of them. You know, there's endless, thousands, millions of unexplained artifacts all over the world, including the Amazon jungle. The Amazon jungle is absolutely full of unexplained monuments, evidences of agriculture, evidences of manipulation of soil, evidence of manipulation of plants. It's just such a mystery what was going on in the ancient past and I hope if anything that this podcast just sparks a little bit of an interest in someone who might not have looked into this stuff if you think this is completely wild and and out of this world I'm reading from a, a mainstream news article this is not this is not a controversial piece some of the other stuff I was talking about is a little bit controversial but this thing about this specific device is being studied by a university through ratified means and they are finding some crazy 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 conclusions so look into it for yourself have an open mind and i'll just finish this piece by reading out the conclusion that came from this article so the videos that have been published by UCL visualize our new model the culmination of a substantial cross-disciplinary effort to elucidate the front of the Antikythera mechanism. Previous research unlocked the ingenuity of the back dials. Here we show the richness of the cosmos at the front. The main structural features of our model are prescribed by the physical evidence, the prime factors of the restored planetary period relations, and the ring description in the BCI. Hypothetical features greatly enhance and justify the cosmos display. A dragon hand thematically linking the front and back dials, and an index letter scheme for the synodic events of the planet. Because of the loss of evidence, we cannot claim that our model is a replica of the original, but our solution to this convoluted 3D puzzle draws powerful support from the logic of our model and its exact match to the surviving evidence. The Antikythera mechanism was a computational instrument for mathematical astronomy, incorporating cycles from Babylonian astronomy and the Greek flair for geometry. It calculated the ecliptic longitudes of the moon, sun, and planets, the phases of the moon, 
the age of the moon, the synodic phases of the planets, the excluded days of the metonic calendar, eclipses, possibilities, times, characteristics, years, and seasons, the heliacal risings and settings of prominent stars and constellations, and the Olympiad cycle, an ancient Greek astronomical compendium of staggering ambition. It is the first known device that mechanized the predictions of scientific theories, and it could have automated many of the calculations needed for its own design. The first steps to the mechanization of mathematics and science. Our work reveals the Antikythera mechanism as a beautiful conception translated by superb engineering into a device of genius. It challenges all our preconceptions about the technological capabilities of the ancient Greeks. So it's refreshing to hear a mainstream scientific article end with a sentence like, it challenges all our preconceptions about the technological capabilities of the ancient Greeks completely agree with that i mean you cannot look at this piece and think yeah that makes total sense that they'd be able to do this there was another thing in this conclusion that i just wanted to talk about it says it's the first known device that mechanized the predictions of scientific theories and it could have automated many of the calculations needed for its own design like that to me says that sounds a lot like the information that this thing gives you, the insights into the cosmos that, the, that this thing gives you, is essentially an automated version of the calculations that you need to figure out in order to understand the things that the machine is giving you. It's like a snake that eats its own tail. Even in this article, it's it's evident to me that they don't understand where this came from because they're saying themselves, this machine seems to show us the stuff that you would need in order to build this machine. It doesn't make sense. It's the same with Gobekli Tepe, for example. There's a, a monument that seems to show us how you would go about building that kind of monument. There's no evidence of how they actually built it, who the people were, how long they took to build it, what was going on there, why they spent so much time and effort creating this thing, why they deliberately buried it. All of that is is unknown. All we've got is the actual evidence, the actual thing that is there that doesn't make sense. So it's it's very easy for mainstream science to conclude, yeah, it's it's amazing that this thing shows us how you would go about building those things. But the, the question, in my opinion, should be, how did they know these things? Where did they come up with the information to do these things? How can you create something like this mechanism when supposedly you are much more technologically primitive than we are now? I feel the same way about Gobekli Tepe. It's just a scale thing. In that one, we're talking about stone masonry and huge huge projects of construction and uh, quarrying and moving and symbols and it's just such a deep situation that's going on there and this is this absolutely incredible intricate machine that seems to have the ability to tell you all this information about the cosmos at some point there had to be either a growth of knowledge and understanding over years and years and generations and generations to get to that point or there was some kind of an inheritance from the past some sort of a remote ancient lost civilization that knew all of this stuff and passed down some of these traditions to more primitive future cultures who have these strange artifacts that seem completely out of place I'm going to end the podcast very soon, but I just wanted to mention a couple of things that I've seen with my own eyes. I've been to the British Museum multiple times to look at the artifacts there, and there's some incredible stuff that you can just look at. It's right there in front of you. These incredible, beautiful vases that are made, that are evidently made as if they were spun on a lathe. You know, you've got a tiny little opening at the top and then a huge uh, cavity on the inside, handles that have perfect circles in them, 
and all made from granite and diorite, stones that we don't manipulate now in that way. We would not be able to just put a diorite piece of stone on a lathe, spin it, and then cut off the the relevant sections as if it was clay. We don't have the technology to do that now. We don't understand how that's done. But these things are attributed to the dynastic Egyptians because of the place that they were found in the ground. It seems much more likely to me that these are inherited pieces. These are heirlooms. These are lost ancient technology that has been passed down from generation to generation, sometimes in the form of story, sometimes in the form of symbolism, sometimes in the form of physical objects that are small that you can hold, like these vases, like this mechanism, and sometimes in the shape of huge unexplained monuments and stones that just make absolutely no sense around the world. So this is the stuff that I'm really into. This is the stuff that I love to question. This is the stuff that I love to learn about. And if you find this interesting, I'll I've obviously going to put I'll put a couple of links in the show description. And I hope you found I hope someone who's listening to this finds this remotely interesting, something that you might want to look into yourself and don't take anything I'm saying for certain. Look into it yourself. Have a look at these articles, have a look at these monuments, have a look at these artifacts and think about it. Keep an open mind and I'm really looking forward to the next episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. It's always a pleasure. I hope that this podcast keeps growing and keeps becoming a nice chilled area where we can discuss all sorts of different topics ranging from building your own life, changing careers, changing everything about what you're doing, recalibrating your compass, and then also moving into kind of the esoteric world, into the symbolic world, into this lost ancient high technology world. And it's a pleasure doing this. I absolutely love it. So there will be a weekly episode every week. And I hope you keep tuning in, get involved and see you next time. Thanks very much. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Question This Life. You can listen to the podcast at questionthislife.com, as well as all of the main podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and get involved. Thank you.